This is AM Rush. I'm your host, Alex Mitchell. Monday, May the 4th be with you. We're going to have a lot of fun with that, but that segment's coming up in about 12 or so parsecs, if you know what I mean. First of all, some headlines today. Thousands of coronavirus testing kits are going to be produced by the New York City government. And some sports news. It looks like the National Football League may not be slowed down too much by coronavirus and could start on time in the fall. We'll talk more about that. And I think you know where I'm going with this, but we're going to have a little bit of fun with Star Wars Day. It is May the 4th today, and with everything going on, I think we could all use a fun little segment like that. But first, let's talk about some news. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that New York City will produce tens of thousands of coronavirus test kits through local institutions throughout the city this week. Nostril swabs will be 3D printed by a company called Print Parts, while the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx is going to produce a, quote, transport medium for the samples. De Blasio said this yesterday during a Sunday press conference in an effort to track cases at a greater capacity. By the end of the week, the de Blasio administration expects there to be 30,000 test kits available and 50,000 produced every week on what he called a rolling basis. And a report came out over this weekend that there is a, quote, extremely small chance that professional football will face cancellations in 2020. The slim chance would mean that future trends and information regarding coronavirus would be, quote, dramatically incorrect. But to put it simply, the virus would have to be as serious as it currently is or was in the previous weeks to deter the National Football League from not only starting, but starting on time at the end of August, technically September. Now, as for the other major sports, no decision has been made as to whether or not baseball will be starting up during the summer, which is speculated along with the possibility of the National Hockey League playing during the summer as well. And AM New York Metro Sports Editor Joe Pantorno and I did a big show talking about the prospect of bringing back baseball, and you can listen to that in our description. May the 4th it is! Alright, that was my attempt at a Yoda impression. But I I guess that didn't go too well. Okay, it's Star Wars Day, and I think we could all use a little bit of cheering up. And just to start off, I'm going to undo that whole Yoda thing, and I'm going to jump in with an even better way to greet someone in the Star Wars universe. Hello there! That's Obi-Wan Kenobi from Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, one of my personal favorite movies. May the 4th, may the 4th be with you. It is recognized internationally, or intergalactically, I should say, as Star Wars Day, one of the most iconic movie franchises, and I'd be lying to you if I haven't seen them all and can quote a majority of them, particularly the prequels, almost religiously. So I think this is an opportune time to share some fun facts about Star Wars that are a little bit less known. Okay, so here's a fun one coming out of The Phantom Menace. The wig that Liam Neeson wore to play Qui-Gon Jinn went missing during an overnight thunderstorm while the crew was on location in Tunisia. That's where they film the scenes on Tatooine, where they find little baby Anakin Skywalker. I guess he's not a baby, but he's a little kid 
kind of complains a lot as he does older. His son tends to do the same thing. And that same severe thunderstorm also apparently wrecked a bunch of pod racers that were used for the film where Anakin races to finally secure his freedom out of slavery, living in an Outer Rim territory, much different than living closer to Coruscant, which is what Padme Amidala, his future wife, who was portrayed to be much older than him, and he was only six, and she was like a teenager. But that's besides the point, getting a little off track. That's something fun about Phantom Menace. Okay, so here's something interesting that older generations lived through, and younger generations only know for its comedic value and the confusion that comes along with it, and that is the Star Wars Holiday Special, which was a very interesting take on the original movies, but apparently, and these fun facts that I'm getting are coming from the official Star Wars site, so these are official Star Wars facts, the Star Wars Holiday Special was apparently direct inspiration for the appearance of Kashyyyk in Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Now, if you don't know what Kashyyyk is, that is the planet that Wookiees are from. That's where Chewbacca is from. And more than it being portrayed in the prequels, there is a battle in Star Wars Battlefront 2, the video game. The original, before it was on PlayStation 4 and everything, there were two original Star Wars Battlefront games. And Star Wars Battlefront 2 did an outstanding job portraying what the Battle of Kashyyyk was like. When the droids were fighting the Republic to the aid of the Wookiees. Now this was before Order 66 had happened. And when you play in that battle mode as the Rise of the Empire, I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, where you're playing as the 501st, a.k.a. the Clone Troopers, in the story mode of the game, that battle and the way it happens, it is portrayed to be the equivalent of Normandy, like the Battle of Normandy, but for Star Wars. That is the sense that that game portrayed, and that is such an awesome level. I mean, the game itself is awesome. Everyone that's played this game is going to love when I reference the heroes versus villains mode on Mos Eisley. That is so much fun. And Mace Windu has a special ground attack and heaven forbid you get in the way of Darth Maul and so on and so forth. Very cool stuff. But I actually, I didn't know that about the Star Wars holiday special inspiring a more realistic, quite frankly, better done version of Chewbacca's home planet. Later in the film Solo, you learn more about Chewbacca and that he has a family. It's always interesting when you learn more about the characters that are outside of the original realm, such as, and this is a question I've had for a while, which Star Wars has been teasing and addressing, can there be a Wookiee Jedi? Jedis are not necessarily humans, if that isn't Clear with Yoda, like so many others, like Kai Adimundi, who was on the Jedi Council, Plo Koon, uh, the list goes on and on and on. I would love to see a Wookiee Jedi. I think that would be very cool, and I wonder if there's a way to do that in The Mandalorian or in some of the future movies that are likely coming up, because you have to imagine it's not just ending with Episode Nine. It, I The way that I felt leaving the theater was that they were setting up a new trilogy 
to unfold. I'm curious about how that will go, but I have hopes. I enjoyed episode nine. I thought that it was a movie made for the fans, which after The Last Jedi, which struck controversy, and I'll be perfectly honest, I was not sold on it. There were parts of it I really loved. I loved the plotline for the Jedi stuff and Luke and how he interacted with Rey. I thought that that was phenomenal, but the rest of the movie to me missed the mark, and I wanted to see, as I do in every movie, I want to see a few more skirmishes between the First Order and the Resistance. I want to actually see that, like in the trenches sort of stuff. I think that that would be something that Star Wars should move forward to doing, personally speaking. And another fun fact about Chewbacca, and this is finally confirmed, the concept for him and Wookiees in general and where how he is the co-pilot for the Millennium Falcon with Han or Han, as Lando Calrissian says, Han Solo, apparently that was supposed to be a representation of how when George Lucas was driving in his car, he would have his dog ride shotgun with him. And that was supposed to be an intergalactic reference to that where it was like Han was driving, Chewie was his dog in the next seat, and I I love that. It makes it feel so human. And Lucas has a thing with cars. He produced a movie before Star Wars called American Graffiti, which was all about hot rods in the 1970s, which I believe Harrison Ford was also in, and that's where they began their relationship together, at least in a a filming sense. But yeah, Chewbacca is supposed to be like George Lucas's little dog riding shotgun while they go to pick up pizza and stuff. I, I love that. And it's so iconic whenever they try to put the Falcon into hyperdrive. It doesn't work. They have to avoid the Empire in other creative ways. But yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Okay, and we all know that Darth Vader, better known as Anakin Skywalker, is Luke's father. But get this. Captain Wedge Antilles is Obi-Wan Kenobi's uncle. Sort of. So the original actor who played Wedge Antilles, Dennis Lawson, is Ian McGregor's uncle. That is awesome, keeping it in the family. And, I mean, they technically meet above the Tantive Four at the end of Revenge of the Sith after Order 66 happens. And I like that they span it back there. I always thought, personally, that Wedge Antilles was an underutilized character throughout Star Wars. He was just kind of that guy that was there serving in the ranks, but he was one of the best pilots in the Rebellion. And his work dates back to working with Bail Organa on the Tantive Four. It's so cool to see that he was alive and doing stuff in the prequels. And if there's going to be another early Star Wars story. I would like to expand his storyline. There's another reference in Phantom Menace when Sheev Palpatine, better known as the Emperor, not then, but Senator Palpatine, is nominated to become the Chancellor. A nominee is also a family member of Antilles, which I find fascinating, and I would love to delve into that storyline to see how they were war heroes and what their involvement in the galaxy's politics was. I think that that's really cool. And when Dennis Lawson got his little cameo in episode nine, riding along with Lando Calrissian, I think that that put 
a big smile on the faces of nerds everywhere that pay attention to this stuff like I do. Okay, here's a weird one. Yoda was almost portrayed by a monkey. And this is coming from the director of Empire Strikes Back, Irvin Kirshner. He said, quote, We thought maybe if we trained a monkey, put him in an outfit, and then animated the lips, that that would work to do Yoda. And Yoda is very eccentric in his debut to the Star Wars audience, which is an interesting portrayal of him not only getting older, but what being isolated on Dagobah for all those years actually did to him mentally. He had no one around. And, you know, failed, failed I have into exile, I must go, after he has his stalemate with the Emperor in Episode 3. That was interesting, and I could see why they would want just a monkey doing, like, erratic behavior. But I think what Star Wars fans love so much about Yoda is that they haven't done anything to taint his character, truly. Because we don't know, and that mystery keeps us intrigued, how Yoda becomes one of the strongest Jedi, how old he is, and that's what they're starting to do with the Mandalorian, and who is the child? Everyone calls him Baby Yoda, but it's not Baby Yoda. It's the child, and John Favreau, who is in charge of the Mandalorian, he's teased about what's going to happen with that, and I think it's going to be very exciting to learn more about Yoda's species. And for those that don't know, another reference to the prequels in Phantom Menace, there is another member of Yoda's species perceived to be female that sits on the Jedi Council. So, technically speaking, if you look back, it was always there. If that's the direction they're going to go down with this, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's Yoda's child or not. I feel like that's too easy. But we'll see. Either way, it'll be very exciting to learn more about other parts of the universe that doesn't just revolve around the Skywalker family. Okay, now, in the sequel movies, in The Last Jedi, the planet crate where the Resistance goes to hide, apparently that explosive surface that turns red was made out of paper. Shredded paper that was dyed red. That's pretty fun to learn. And another one out of that movie... Laura Dern, who played Admiral Holdo, apparently couldn't resist making pew-pew sound effects when she was firing her blaster in The Last Jedi. Now, that came straight from Ryan Johnson in the director's commentary. That's hilarious. And I didn't have a problem with her character, but I had a problem with how she was rushed into the plot. I don't understand unless it was just something ad-libbed, if they made her an active character giving orders in Force Awakens, I think a lot of fans would have less issues with that film because it didn't just seem like she was just installed. Kind of like Count Dooku was just kind of installed in Episode 2. So, for me, if, if there was a little bit more development then especially the way that she sacrifices herself to save the Resistance, there would have been a little bit more of a connection and a little bit 
more of empathy. And that's the thing with the new characters in the sequel films. They need to grow on people a little bit more. They need to feel that connection, that warmth, everything that they have together to make it really fun and, and really cool. And that's why I, I think that the next three movies, they should really work on kind of the triangle between Finn, Poe Dameron, and Ray. That's kind of like the new Luke, Han, and Leia, if it goes in that direction where there is a love interest. We'll see what happens, but you need that more core group feeling, like like these are the guys who have been through thick and thin together, and you've started to get that. You started to get that in Episode Nine. Now it just needs to continue where you really, if something were to happen to one of these characters, you're emotive about it. Because you've seen them be through so much together. And before we wrap up today's show, I have something very important to say. Something that needs to be heard throughout the universe and in all of the Outer Rim territories. The Star Wars prequels are good movies. They really are. They are not so bad. Attack of the Clones? All right. All right, I'll give you that. But Revenge of the Sith was wonderfully done, and Phantom Menace, if you think about it, that was the most difficult movie to make. You have the conclusion, you need to figure out not only how you get there, but how you start to get there in Phantom Menace. And to anyone that doesn't know, anyone that only kind of brushes on Star Wars and doesn't know the nuances, Darth Maul never dies, and he's probably going to make a cinematic appearance. He is guaranteed that. Now, I wish, like many other fans, that pod racing, the 45 minutes of that, was substituted to learn more about Palpatine, about Darth Maul, get more dialogue from him. But the Star Wars Clone Wars, the TV show, really does him justice. So if you don't know about that yet, you should certainly check it out. But besides that, when you find the value in that, It is remarkable how much you learn about the universe and how many hints are there to see what happens in the future. Such as Liam Neeson, Qui-Gon Jinn's character, he makes so many bad judgment calls throughout Phantom Menace that it's telltale that there is a mistake being made. A prophecy misread, as Yoda once said. I didn't even mean to make that rhyme. But I guess it worked. And in Attack of the Clones, which was misguided, but again, you have a lot of redeeming value in it. There is one of the coolest scenes in all of the films. And that is when all the Jedi are on Geonosis battling all the battle droids. She can't do that? Shoot her or something! That scene is so awesome. And if you put it in any other movie, it would get a better reputation. And that is the, that's pretty much the only redeeming value in Attack of the Clones, but still, it counts. It really does. It was really good. Could a lot have been done differently? I I guess so. I don't guess so. I know so. But still, I appreciate how it progressed the story. You get the Death Star in Attack of the Clones. That's how important the film is. Count Dooku was a weird character to just kind of bring in, and 
there's always been speculation, as crazy as it sounds, that Jar Jar Binks was supposed to be a Sith Lord revealed later down the line, but the character was so hated that Lucas called an audible and brought in Count Dooku for episode two, who gets shortly beheaded into Revenge of the Sith by Anakin. And something really interesting about when he holds, when Anakin Skywalker holds the two lightsabers over Count Dooku's head, that showed that Anakin was at the crossroads of good and evil. One lightsaber is blue, which represents the Jedi. The other is red. So that was an excellent visualization of the plot for Revenge of the Sith. I thought that was cool. And to me personally, I love Revenge of the Sith. That is a great movie. It is wonderful. Right before Obi-Wan goes to Utapau, when Anakin is saying goodbye to him for the last time and says, I've been selfish, I haven't been grateful of your training, and Obi-Wan says, You are strong and wise, Anakin, and I am very proud of you. We're going to become a far greater Jedi than I ever hoped to be. I think that last part is on the money. I think one or two words may be off. I'm not reading a script on this. This is all coming out of my head. The last thing Obi-Wan says to Anakin before he leaves is, Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. That was the last time Obi-Wan spoke to Anakin Skywalker. Because the next time that they meet, he is Darth Vader. When you realize that, oh, it hurts. It really does. Give Revenge of the Sith a fair shake. Of course there were some mistakes made. But you know, it's not like the originals were perfect. Look at the Ewoks! You know, a bunch of teddy bears beating up on stormtroopers. No one seems to get overly emotional about that, but oh, the prequels are so terrible. Mistakes were made in each film. But it's part of it. I think what we love about Star Wars is that it's not perfect, but it's our universe. And we get frustrated because we can imagine how great it could be. But the prequels are great. And they should be treated as such. They are great films. And to me, they're more important than the originals. And I want to see more of that history. Of the Jedi. Of the Old Republic. It's kind of like the Roman Empire. The first half was a republic, the second half was an empire. And don't think Lucas didn't do that. Lucas does so many things to splice it in with the real world and real history. You know, there's a reason that in the Clone Wars, you have the Republic fighting the Confederacy. Does that sound familiar to the Civil War, anyone? And even the clone troopers have blue on them, and the battle droids are gray, like, like even to the colors they matched up. Lucas does so much like that, and it is very admirable to see the universe that he had created. And the prequels were his movies to direct. Again, mistakes were made, but that really was a raw shot at what George Lucas was thinking about. And that's why I admired these movies so much. And I can quote them religiously. I really can. They're that great. So I think, because I could continue doing this for hours and hours, 
that's where I'm going to wrap up this Star Wars not holiday special of AM Rush. I'm Alex Mitchell. New York, stay tough out there. We're going to get through this together. I say it every time, but I really mean it. Every day, we're coming closer and closer. Don't give up. Don't quit. Wash your hands, and may the Force be with you.